Views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It doesn't seem real. It's a nightmare. We still dream about it. The drive to keep living is gone. Boston, the city of champions, or title town as it's been referred to as. The name, of course, referencing the city's dominance in professional sports, spanning over the course of several decades. If you're not from Boston and you happen to be a sports fan, chances are you despise franchises such as the Celtics, Red Sox, Bruins, and most certainly the Patriots. But if you are from Beantown and you're a sports fan, well, there's simply no better place to be. With 17 Larry O'Brien trophies for the Seas, six Stanley Cups for the Bruins, six Super Bowl wins for the Pats, and nine World Series titles for the Sox at the time of this episode. When it comes to winning, the people of Boston are spoiled. It's a place where athletes are gods among men, and the words of beloved broadcast announcers are respected as gospel by fans. While there is much to be proud of as a Bostonian, it would be during one organization's most successful reign of wins when a tragic disparity would occur. A dichotomy created which contrasted back-to-back championships with a brutal crime. An attack so close to home, it would directly affect the Boston Red Sox entire organization in particular. This is a story of not only titles, but also of entitlement, when the son of a local legend got off easy one too many times, causing the city to begin questioning the thin line drawn between power and responsibility. They say if you give an inch, some will inevitably take a mile. But 35-year-old Jared Remy took much more than that. This is the story of one man's privilege, pushed to the brink, and it wouldn't be until a heinous tragedy occurred, until the city of Boston would finally open its eyes. that uh, has a lot of fans that stay at the same hotel we are. And I had a nice lady behind me tap me on the shoulder and said, hey, can you say Xander Bogots for my son? So I said, sure. And I said, Xander Bogots. And they all start laughing. So I, I mean, am I saying it wrong? I, I, I think you say it fine. Now, if you were to say Daniel Narver, I would say perhaps. Daniel Narver. Okay, well, that's good. That's the voice of pro baseball player turned announcer Jerry Remy. Remy grew up in Somerset, Massachusetts, and went on to live his dream, playing in the MLB for 10 seasons, seven with the California Angels and three with the Boston Red Sox in the 1970s into the mid-80s. He was an all-star second baseman in his prime, and eventually was inducted into the Red Sox Hall of Fame. Four years after retiring from professional baseball, Remy took naturally to a broadcasting position he'd been offered at NESN, or the New England Sports Network covering games for his former and favorite hometown team. Jerry also called Sox games on the Fox 25 network as well, 
Remy quickly became a hit with the viewers at home and listeners on the radio, capturing their hearts through his comedic approach to commentating. Alongside his co-anchor Don Orsillo, the two spent 15 seasons calling games together and were a match made in sports broadcasting heaven. They evolved into a legendary Boston duo, known for their lighthearted takes and organic back-and-forth banter. There were many hilarious moments delivered by Jerry in the booth, but one of the most memorable was back in 2007. While calling a Sox versus Angels game, the two teams he once played for, a pop fly was hit foul to left field, and a fan obstructed the outfielder while trying to catch himself a souvenir ball. Needless to say, beer and food went flying everywhere in the stands. But the way Remy reports what is happening here is a perfect example of his shining on-air personality. Oh, what did the oh. What was that that came flying in? I'm not so sure that that was a, a mistake which on his shoulder. It looks like somebody may have yeah. rolled some stuff on him just to, to add insult to injury. I thought he rolled in the mud before he came to the game, uh, but no, that's not correct. He got hit with some type of sub sandwich or something. Oh, he want, now he wants a piece uh, of it. You want to throw something there at There we go. As several people reach out for the foul ball, another man about 10 seats down oddly throws a slice of pizza at the fan who directly interfered with the outfielder, hitting him square in the face, cheese side up. Here is Jerry Remy's play-by-play of that incident. Here comes a pizza, see it? <laughs> oh, jeez. Highly unnecessary. Guy with the Patriots jacket, and of course he's been asked to leave the ball game for ruining a good piece of pizza. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, beer all over. And here comes... Pizza. One more look in slow motion if we can, and here's the Patriot. Here it comes. This, I'm going to throw my pizza. That was an awful sight here at Fenway, and that that is not tolerated in this ballpark. He has been ejected and never again allowed to buy pizza. Jerry Remy had a knack for not only breaking up the monotony of a two- to four-hour baseball game, but for making people laugh in the process while laying his thick New England accent on each night. Let's face it. Baseball commentary can be pretty boring at times. This is what set Remy apart. He'd even go on to become a successful restaurateur, opening a small chain of bar and restaurants carrying his name, Jerry Remy's. The Fenway Park location would eventually become one of the most popular game day restaurants, sitting on the corner of Yaki Way, directly adjacent to the ballpark's entrance. If there was a headline in the Boston Herald at the time for Jerry Remy's story, it would be titled neighborhood kid makes good. He was relatable. They even called him Remdog. He was dubbed president of Red Sox Nation, the team's unofficial fan club. Remy was a success story, but still a man of the people. What those people didn't see, however, was that behind all of the jokes and air guitar concerts Remy was putting on for NESN viewers back home, there was something much more dark that lay beneath the surface. See, It wasn't all Sweet Caroline and Dirty Water sing-alongs in Jerry's personal life. Things were much different in the Remy household than they were over at Fenway Park. He and his wife, Phoebe, were dealing with their children, who were in and out of trouble. But no child out of the three was as disobedient as their son, Jared. Since his youth, Jared was getting into quite a lot of trouble. He was born September 7, 1978 the same year his father Jerry was traded and began playing for the Boston Red Sox. It was also the same year that Jerry was elected to play at the MLB All-Star Game, though he wouldn't end up being able to play, possibly because of his duties as a father, 
and responsibility to his newborn son. Jared grew up in a wealthy neighborhood located in Weston, Massachusetts. He would attend Weston High, but not for long after he began acting out. He struggled with dyslexia and aggression as a kid and was soon transferred to the Gifford School, an alternative learning institute for teens with behavioral and learning issues. Even though the Gifford School was geared toward helping individuals just like Jared, not even they could handle his behavior. As a result of his continued acting out, he was eventually kicked out, forcing his parents to hire a private tutor to continue teaching him at home. It would be around this same time in 1996 where we'd actually see Jared Remy's name pop up for the first time in police logs, marking the inception of a lengthy criminal history he'd carry out for years to come. Ex-pro baseball player and father of Jared, Jerry Remy, even called authorities himself at one point, concerned that his son may have been harassing his ex-girlfriend. Jerry had been made aware that his son had been incessantly calling the young woman, and that he had allegedly also physically shoved her during an altercation. This behavior naturally worried the Remys, as it was the first significant display of violence exhibited by their then 17-year-old son. Police records from the time indicate that the family of Jared's ex-girlfriend were considering pressing charges and filing a restraining order against him, though they inevitably didn't follow through, as they feared it may just make the unruly teen even more angry and possibly cause him to act out further. This is perhaps another profound moment, a trend of dangerous patterns we'll see repeat throughout Jared Remy's future relationships. Fear was something that he used to his advantage. Jared got off with a slap on the wrist for this one, and nothing more than a little talking to by police and his parents would ever come from it. Sadly, everyone involved would quickly learn that Jared hadn't learned his lesson. Later that year, the same ex-girlfriend began dating someone else, and Jared didn't like that very much. He found the new boyfriend's home phone number and called the family's landline constantly, demanding the young man stop talking with his ex-girlfriend. When his father Jerry was out of town with the Red Sox for spring training camp, Jarrett decided to pay his former school, Weston High, a visit. When he arrived, he immediately approached and threatened his ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend, aggressively confronting the 15-year-old boy in person. The father of this young man had tragically passed away around the same time as this altercation. Knowing this, Jared maliciously told him that he'd make the boy, quote, join his father in the grave if he didn't stop speaking with his ex-girlfriend. Jared eventually left school grounds without inciting any physical harm during the altercation. He did, however, tell the boy that he'd be back and that next time it'd be with a gun. Once more, Jared would get off with nothing more than a warning after a police visit was made to the family home. He would continue to get away with scenarios just like this all throughout his youth. Everyone knew Jared was troubled, but it wouldn't be until much later that the word troubled would become a crass understatement, and the word evil would more appropriately take its place when defining this man's incorrigible actions. By the spring of 1996, Jared had time to cool off. He was sent by his mother to join his father Jerry down in Florida, the pair thinking perhaps a change of scenery might help their son. Jared's father was extremely busy, fully immersed in his position with the Boston Red Sox. 
Sure enough, Jared eventually made his way back to Massachusetts, not long after his arrival. And by this time, his focus was now off of his ex-girlfriend, as he had begun dating someone new, a 14-year-old girl named Tiffany Guyette. Jared and Tiffany had met at the Gifford School a few years back. She certainly had a more difficult upbringing than Remy did, having spent some time in a foster home growing up. Regardless, in Guyette's words, the two, quote, fell hard for one another. Jared's behavior, while not exactly exemplary, arguably had improved, slightly at least. At the very minimum, his anger had seemingly subsided, though he was still getting speeding tickets and generally causing ruckus in the neighborhood. He hadn't physically harmed or threatened fatal violence toward anyone in a while. And yet, that wouldn't last long. By 1997, Jared and Tiffany were spending more time together. Guyette was enamored with the lifestyle that the Remy family provided her, as Jared's girlfriend, a stark contrast to her life prior. Jared's mother Phoebe purchased Tiffany a brand new pager with service paid in full, among several other gifts including a diamond bracelet. The gift of the pager came even before everyone was playing Snake on their candy bar Nokia cell phones. A pager was the cool new technology at the time, something the poor kids certainly didn't have access to. This was big for Tiffany. She felt special, as she had never owned any expensive material things before. She clung to that feeling of love shown by the entire Remy family. But Jared would eventually use the pager his mother bought Tiffany specifically as a device of control. When she didn't answer Jared's several house phone calls, he would page her, typing the numbers 187, or the penal code for murder. Jerry and Phoebe hoped the new relationship between their son and Tiffany would help steer Jared down a more positive path in life. But suddenly, Tiffany became pregnant in January of that year. This newfound revelation was unfortunately about the same time Jared decided to revert back to his old ways. On January 18, 1997, in Franklin, Massachusetts, roughly 45 miles outside of Boston, Jared Remini and Tiffany Guyette attended a house party together. One of the many teens there was 15-year-old John Lloyd. Lloyd was a friend of Tiffany's and, naturally, Jared took offense to that. After hours of plotting while drinking Captain Morgan in the basement, Remy eventually concocted a plan, coaxing a few other friends of theirs to help him jump Lloyd. Candace Wright and Selena Elliott ultimately agreed, and upon leaving the party under strict instructions from Jared Remy, Wright bashed Lloyd over the head with Jared's empty private stock malt liquor 40-ounce bottle. She hit the boy so hard from behind, he never saw it coming. He fell to the ground and the group of teens began viciously stomping the young man's head and body as he lay defenseless. Soon after, the group fled in Jared Remy's Volvo, and police would arrive at the home in Franklin to find John Lloyd stunned and in a pool of his own blood. He was found laying on the front steps and was rushed to a nearby hospital. Soon after arriving, however, he was immediately sent via med flight to UMass Medical Center, with life-threatening injuries and severe trauma to his head. Lloyd would survive this incident, but those close to him say he was never the same after the attack. His cognitive functions were permanently altered and he fell into years of deep depression following the assault, eventually forming suicidal thoughts that never seemed to leave him. When police eventually caught up to the teenagers in question, almost everyone would admit to their involvement in the crime. 
Everyone that is except for Jared. And surprisingly, no one ratted Jared out as they were too afraid. Candace Wright would be placed on probation along with others in the group. Tiffany was questioned about her boyfriend's involvement, but she was tight-lipped. Jared had coached her on how to approach this situation before the cops had arrived. Guyette would later go on record to state that she was, quote, a minor, pregnant, and petrified. It's clear she too was afraid of what Jared might do if she told police what he had actually done and that he was the mastermind behind the beating altogether. And with that, Jared Remy avoided punishment once more, ducking and dodging any legal repercussions for his actions yet again. On September 16, 1997, Jared and Tiffany's newborn son was brought into the world. Tiffany was just 16 and Jared 19. About a year later, Jared would finally get his first legitimate job as a turnpike toll booth worker, earning $18.02 an hour. This would be considered a pretty damn good wage for a teenager in 2021, never mind back in 1998. But like Jared's temper, the lifespan of his new job was short. He was inevitably fired for undisclosed reasons in 1999. And just before being let go, an even more serious incident would occur. One that, for the first time, might actually send Jared Remy to jail. By the summer of 1998, things weren't going so great between Jared and Tiffany. She spoke to friends about wanting to leave him, but felt stuck due to her ties to the Remy family and for the sake of their newborn child. The then 140-pound Jared, with his pre-existing anger issues, began taking steroids around this time period as well. Needless to say, it didn't help the situation much. He was frequenting the gym more and more often, and spoke openly about wanting to get bigger and faster, expressing that he didn't care who knew about his drug use. On August 6, 1998, an argument broke out in the Remy's driveway between Tiffany and Jared during a pre-scheduled handoff of their young son. Tiffany was holding their one-year-old when Jared began choking her with his bare hands. He eventually let go, but only to snap off both wipers from her vehicle. He then smashed the windshield and began bashing her taillights with a blunt object. Guyette and the child narrowly escaped this incident without any major injuries, aside from the visible dark bruised finger impressions Remy left around her throat. The police were called and Jared was finally arrested on charges of domestic assault and malicious destruction of property. Jared Remy spent the night in jail and was arraigned the next morning at Waltham District Court. He was given a no-contact order and soon released. The trial would eventually be set for a year later that October. This is when the Remy family decided that Jared may need a lawyer. So Jerry and Phoebe hired respected local attorney Peter Bella for their son. This would be the first time, but surely not the last, when Remy was in desperate need of legal representation, and Jerry and Phoebe would foot the bill each and every time for their son. On October 21st, 1998, under the guidance of Jared Remy's new and astute legal counsel, he waived his right to a jury trial for assaulting Tiffany Guyette. This was yet another tactic and trend we will see play out time and time again. Remy asked the judge for leniency. And while unbeknownst to the court, Jared had already breached his no-contact order with Miss Guyette. 
While awaiting trial, he told Tiffany that he still loved her and ultimately convinced her not only to cease pursuing any further legal action against him, but to actually speak to his defense in court. With Guyette now deciding not to move forward with the charges in court, the judge would hand down a continuance without a finding ruling, a judgment unique to Massachusetts state law, providing a probationary period without an official conviction. Basically, it's a no-contest plea, or a way to admit that you have broken the law without actually having to plead guilty, thus allowing an individual to avoid harsher legal ramifications. The term for this finding required Jared to attend therapy and remain trouble-free for one year. Remy came relatively near that 12-month mark, but alas, he was close but no cigar. Just weeks before finishing his probation, he chose to smash a beer bottle over the head of Eric Jakowitz, another friend of Tiffany's. It's obvious at this point that Jared is the jealous type and has developed a strange infatuation with battling any man that comes within earshot of any of his girlfriends, women who he seems to view more as possessions than people. With his new lawyer on retainer, thanks to mom and dad, Jared felt well prepared. He was facing yet another assault and battery with a dangerous weapon charge for hitting Jackowitz over the head with a bottle. And to no one's surprise, Jared would once again walk free, as this charge was handled in the same manner as before, Remy ultimately waiving his right to a jury trial in exchange for another continuance without finding ruling. He was then sent on his merry way. To prosecutors, this made no sense. They urged the judge to reconsider a harsher sentence for the repeat offender. And yet, somehow Jared's record was still clean, with no prior convictions documented. By now, Jared felt untouchable. He bragged to friends about always being able to do whatever he wanted when he wanted, and to get away with it with no serious charge. Things would go on like this for years, with Jared's attitude worsening almost as severely as his steroid use had. Tiffany would finally end up successfully leaving her relationship with Jared, a feat she had wanted to overcome for some time, which was surely no easy task. This man's track record of abuse, violence, and run-ins with law enforcement had become so extensive, quite frankly, it's baffling that he wasn't locked up. There were countless additional documented run-ins with police, including beer bottle fights, other continuances without finding rulings, probation violations, and threatening phone calls. I mean, the list goes on. Simply put, it would be impossible to cite them all here in an hour-long episode. If you feel so inclined, Google Jared Remy's police record. It is truly astounding. And with that being said, what's more bizarre than the acts committed by Remy was just how many times this man was slapped on the wrist and let go. Tiffany Guyette was now out of the picture, and Remy's aggression had become magnified by his use of anabolic steroids. As he became bigger and stronger, he also became more irate, and his behavior particularly towards women, would only get worse from here. From 1999 to 2003, Jared Remy was completely off the rails. He was in a near-constant state of chaos among custody battles between his child's mother, Tiffany. Jared Remy dated two other women during this time as well, Lisa Janakopoulos and Ryan McMahon. 
He physically abused and emotionally tortured them both. Melissa Jamelli, a friend of McMahon's, was hit over the head by Remy's weapon of choice, a beer bottle at the Skelly, a bar in Waltham, Massachusetts, which has since closed. Jared also slashed Jamelli's tires. He'd also shown up to the workplaces of these women, threatening to kill them, along with any men they were seen with. Jared would always be arrested, but was subsequently let go. It seemed that any woman Remy had a relationship with was too nervous to testify against him. So if restraining orders ever were filed, they were eventually dropped. Remy would either intimidate his victims or they would drop the charges out of fear on their own accord. Here's an example. In 2002, his girlfriend at the time, Ryan McMahon, did file for a restraining order. Here is Ryan's original statement from his police affidavit. The incident is dated September 18, 2002, and reads, quote, Jared Remy stated that he was going to kill me, Michelle, and all my friends, that I was a and a that he was going to make my life a living hell, and that we would pay. He stated this after he keyed and slashed my friend's tires. He called the house three times. I kept hanging up on him. I called the police before he stated this, then a second time after the threatening call. The call was received at 1.15 a.m. According to court records, this case was later dropped at the request of Ryan McMahon. By the time he turned 25 years old, Jared was well over 200 pounds of near-solid muscle, sufficiently juiced up on steroids. He was a meathead and proud of it. He also bore a striking resemblance to WCW pro wrestler Goldberg at the time. Basically, Remy now looked as mean as he had actually become. He had no job, yet had an apartment. He told former girlfriends that he was given a, quote, allowance for spending from his parents. He was also regularly bailed out, literally, from jail by Jerry and Phoebe, sometimes with bonds as high as $500 each. In complete contrast to his son's life, Father Jerry's career was flourishing. While Jared was creating a living hell for nearly everyone around him, Jerry Remy was in the limelight, smiling for the camera. Jerry Remy had two very different lives, one at Fenway and the other at home, dealing with his son. You know, for the first time in a while, last night was a game where you got the good solid start, you got the two innings of relief from your setup guy and Mike Timlin, and you got the close by Lyon. It was almost like a normal baseball game, and we haven't had too many of those, so it was, an, it was a nice start for Roop and a nice way to get his uh, feet wet with the Red Sox. Now we'll see whether he stays in the starting rotation or goes back into the bullpen. From his keen focus and thoughtful insight on the games called from the broadcast booth, you'd never know what this man was going through personally as Jared's father. But by the time 2004 came around, Jerry's fame would explode and the city's tunnel vision for the sports world would only narrow. Boston's entire focus was religiously set on baseball. That's because the Red Sox had just won their first championship since 1918, breaking the so-called 86-year-long curse of the Bambino. While the Sox rode the famous duck boats down Tremont Street, celebrating their first win in nearly nine decades, there was a family grieving what no one yet saw, the family of John Lloyd. Lloyd, the now 22-year-old whom Jared and friends had stomped out on the front steps of a Franklin home 
roughly seven years prior, had just committed suicide. John's depression had finally gotten the best of him. But just like all of the other heartaches Jared had inflicted over the years, he'd never faced any significant consequence for the pain he'd caused. But if he's getting away with it, if he's outspokenly proud of being impervious to police punishment, how could anyone expect him to change? The Remy family kept all of Jared's legal troubles well under wraps for a very long time. With the help of his lawyer of many years now, Peter Bella, they'd always managed to avoid a jury trial, thus never garnishing any real media coverage for any of Jared's infractions. After all, the family had a reputation to look after. That of Jerry Remy's, of course. With new branches of Jerry Remy restaurants popping up all over New England and NESN ratings topping the local charts, life seemed great, for Jerry at least. But the truth is, it wasn't. Behind closed doors, he and Phoebe were at a loss. Virtually no one knew the pain their son had been putting them through, excluding his victims, that is. The Remy family continued to do what they could for Jared, as his unconditionally loving parents. Jerry even secured his son a job doing security for the Red Sox, mainly checking patrons' bags at the entrance to Fenway Park. And while finally obtaining a job may have seemed like another glimmer of hope in regards to Jared's potentially changing his ways, the entire staying positive concept completely went out of the window in 2005. That's because during yet another incident, Jared beat his girlfriend so badly that the issue could no longer be ignored. November 7th, 2005. Police respond to a disturbance, only to find Jared Remy's girlfriend, Ryan McMahon, bloody with a broken nose. Her lip was cut, her mouth swollen, and she had two forming black eyes. Jared had dragged Ryan down the steps of her apartment. He then fled and was later arrested at his parents' home later that evening. Jared had ripped the house phone out of the wall so Ryan couldn't call for help. She reported that she was punched repeatedly as she folded up in the fetal position, waiting for Jared to stop wailing on her. She was also kicked in the head numerous times while on the floor before he left. Ryan McMahon was somehow able to make it next door to a neighbor's house where she'd called for help. After police arrived at the Remy's home in Weston, Mass., they witnessed Jared peering through his parents' first floor window, surely anticipating their arrival. He was subsequently charged with four counts of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, an additional charge of assault and battery, and one count of intimidating a witness. He admitted to police officers that he, quote, slapped her around and openly boasted the likelihood of receiving, quote, just another year of probation. He was arrested and though his working wage at the ballpark was merely $10 an hour, he somehow posted the $3,000 bail and was released. Remy was arraigned the very next morning, only this time he wouldn't get off so easily. The time had finally come where Jared Remy's dangerous behavior could no longer be swept under the rug. He was held without bond as he awaited trial. Although his loyal attorney requested that Remy be released from pretrial confinement, his motion was ultimately denied. At last, Remy would see jail time. He'd spend 81 days incarcerated, and on January 26, 2006, he was released after yet another bench trial. Remy would be ordered to complete a 40-week intervention domestic violence program, pay a list of fees and fines, and submit to random drug tests. 
it was beginning to feel like the same old song and dance. Bella gladly accepted these terms for his client, while the state pushed for a more strict sentence. They argued the case of his recidivism and likeliness to commit similar acts if released. Prosecutors urged the court for a sentence of two years behind bars. However, Bella won the case and Remy, once again, was free to go. Historically, this would be one of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts' most costly mistakes. With a laundry list of violent offenses committed by Jared Remy, it wasn't a matter of if he would reoffend, but when, and just how life-threatening his actions would be the next time around. When Jared was released from jail, he'd have his security job waiting for him back at Fenway. He seemed to keep his nose clean for a bit and was living back with his parents. Ryan McMahon was luckily able to stay away from Jared for the most part, but if there's one thing we know about Jared Remy's actions, it's that history repeats itself. It would only be a matter of time before he'd find the next woman in his life to victimize. And sure enough, that day would come in the summer of 2007 at a barbecue. Jared Remy had met a 22-year-old woman by the name of Jennifer Martell from Taunton, Massachusetts. She was smart, pretty, and had been attending the party with another man, who was also a security guard for the Red Sox. Remy and Martell began chatting, and the two quickly hit it off. They decided to exchange information and, soon after, began casually dating. It wasn't anything serious at first, but things changed pretty rapidly after Jennifer unexpectedly became pregnant. As early as September of 2008, their baby girl was born. Her name was Ariana. Things began moving rather fast for Remy and Martel after Ariana was born. They ended up getting a place together in Waltham's Windsor Village Apartments, a relatively upscale complex with an indoor gym, in-ground pool, and community barbecue area and courtyard. But soon after moving in, Jared Remy found himself caught up in a Major League Baseball scandal when he was accused of providing enhancement steroids to Red Sox players at his place of employment. Remy denied all claims, going on record to state to the Boston Globe, quote, If I'm killing anyone, it's myself. Admitting openly to the newspaper of his own drug use, Jared Remy was let go by the Red Sox organization soon after. While he remained jobless, friends and family do remember Jared calming down a bit during this time. He gave up drinking hard alcohol and was spending time with his daughter, while Jennifer Martell was at work. Residents of the Windsor Village apartment units recall Remy as more sad than angry or threatening during this time period. They also recall noticing him on his patio, staring despondently in the direction of his daughter and Jennifer as they played outside. Other than that, Jared wasn't doing much besides going to the gym, tanning, or watching TV. Some remember him walking his dogs around the property, but no one ever really spoke with him. If he did speak to someone else in the community, he was most often telling them about his father, reminding those around him that he was indeed the son of famous Red Sox announcer Jerry Remy. Jennifer had really come a long way in her personal life. She had worked her way up at the local grocery store and market basket and was promoted to manager. She was the first person in her family to ever finish high school, but she wanted to accomplish so much more. 
Jennifer was in the process of completing her associate's degree online with eventual plans of attending Framingham State College, where she hoped to one day become a teacher. On top of all that, she was also raising their daughter, Ariana. This is when Jennifer Martell would eventually meet Christina, a woman who unknowingly would become one of her closest friends. Hi, I'm Christina Flickinger, formerly Christina Hill. That was my married name at the time. Christina had just moved to a new town and became acquainted with Jennifer upon arriving at her new apartment. She remembers how kind and welcoming Jennifer was, even from the very first time they'd met. I moved to Waltham with my husband at the time, and Jen and their daughter, Ariana, were actually waiting for me at the front steps of the apartment complex where we both lived. They were anticipating having a new neighbor, and they wanted to see who that new neighbor would be, so they were excitedly waiting. Christina and her ex-husband shared a wall with Remy and Martel, dividing the apartments merely by a thin layer of sheetrock. The two units shared a back patio, only separated by a knee-high half-brick wall. Christina and Jen hit it off right away and became virtually inseparable. It was a very fast friendship. We spent most of the summer together. From my side of things, it was a fast friendship from the get-go, from that first day of meeting them. Christina was glad to have made such a good friend. Jen was equally as appreciative of their friendship along with Christina's willingness to help them with her daughter, Ariana, while the young mother juggled the schoolwork, a day job, and her responsibilities as a parent. Jen and I used to spend Tuesday nights during the summer when Pretty Little Liars was on TV drinking white wine. She'd come over and she'd bring Ariana and we would laugh and we'd have wine. We had meals together at least two, three times a week usually. They would dog sit for us. We would dog sit for them. We took Ariana to the beach. We'd try on wedding dresses together. Um, You know, I've got pictures of her wearing my wedding dress. We did a lot together. Jared and Jennifer eventually were engaged to be married, but Christina found their relationship to be odd. The two seemed to be polar opposites. Jennifer was very nice and compassionate, while Jared was loud and obnoxious. Jen and Jared were very different people, and that was very clear from the get-go. Jen was a gregarious, open, sweet, intelligent person. The first impression that Jared made is he was rough around the edges. He was a tough guy, right? He put on this facade or this um, this character of being a tough guy, but that's all we really thought that it was. He would often you know, say things and do things that were questionable, and you'd sit there and say, he's just a little bit full of it, but nothing that would make you feel necessarily unsafe or worried. There was one moment that stuck in Christina's mind as being particularly questionable. That occurred during a couple's dinner she'd hosted at her apartment one evening. We were eating dinner. You just went on a homophobic rant, right, about, you know, oh, I'm going to kill the gay guy if he, like, ever hits on me in the gym sort of thing. And Jen was just a very strong, independent woman. and And I just remember her turning to him and being like, and this is why we actually will never get married. Clearly, no one was impressed by Remy's embarrassing and homophobic comments. Christina saw Jared as more unintelligent than anything. She wasn't keen on Remy, and she could see it in Jennifer's face that she wasn't either. Sure enough, Christina's intuition was correct. Soon after, Jen began confiding in Christina about her plans for the future. 
and how those plans did not involve Jared. Jen had had a lot of conversations with me about changes that she was going to make in her life, and she didn't see that segueing with Jared. So we'd had those types of conversations, and she just felt they were growing apart, and there wasn't a lot of mutual connection there. Jared began to sense that Jennifer was losing interest in him. He began to feel as though he was losing control, something we know that Jared Remy doesn't cope well with. It was at this point that Christina began to see Jared's true colors. He knew something was changing in their relationship. She was growing, she was flying, and he was not. And I think this drove him to possession more so than ever before. Christina could hear arguments between the two through the wall, but never really viewed Jared as a physical threat to Jennifer. Not until one evening in August of 2013, when Jen came by with her daughter, just like any other night. She came over with Ariana. Uh, we went, sat down to watch the TV show and she got a call from Jared and I think she ignored the first call and then he called again and again and then was incessantly texting and she walked to the back of our apartment where our staircase was. So she was on the phone with him and I, you could hear him because he was being loud and he was saying, you know, you should only watch TV with me. Why are you over there? When she hung up, I looked at her and I was like, Jen don't do it. Like, don't satisfy him. What are you doing? And she sort of sighed and said that she she had to for, you know, she had to just keep the peace. In an effort to de-escalate the situation, Jennifer headed back to her apartment, leaving Ariana with Christina. But it wouldn't be more than 10 minutes before an argument turned to screams and then loud banging heard on the other side of the wall. Christina ran next door to help, knowing that something was wrong. As she arrived at Jennifer's back door, her friend was already walking quickly toward her onto the patio. Jennifer appeared to be injured, and Jared screamed in the background as he chased after her. She was walking outside, and she was holding her head, and she was like, go, just go. Jared was shouting from behind her, and we went back to, to, my, to mine and closed the door, and I said what had happened, and she said that Jared had thrown her into a mirror in the bathroom downstairs. As she sought refuge in Christina's apartment, Jennifer calls 911. State Police 911. This line is recorded. Where is your emergency? Um, I just have a domestic a domestic abuse, uh, domestic violence. What's your address? My, my, it's, uh, it's, well, we live at 1203 and I'm at 1202 Stern Hill Road in Waltham. Jared Remy then suddenly bursts through Christina's apartment door after using a spare key that Jennifer was given previously to help walk the dog. Um, 12, oh, it's, 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 it's the address. Okay. Yeah, talk to you can hear Jennifer become flustered and clearly frightened on the call as Jared enters Christina's unit. He demands that Jennifer return to their apartment. You can hear Jared Remy in the background until he actually grabs the phone to speak to the operator himself. Yeah, hello? Hi. Yeah, hi. I live on 1203 Stone Road. Yeah. Um, our problem is... Like they're locking me out of the, the neighbor's house. I have no problem with that. The lady next to me at unit 1202 is a DSS called on her. Let me connect you to Waltham, sir. Hold on. Jared takes the phone and tries to place the blame on Christina for the incident regarding an alleged claim of the mistreatment of her own child. While the state dispatcher is transferring Jared to the local police, he takes Jennifer's phone and quickly rushes back to their apartment next door. This is Waltham. 
call him 911. What's the emergency? Call? Oh, perfect, perfect. Thank you. Yes, my girlfriend's next door at our friend's house. So DSS is involved. And I don't want my daughter over there. And I am wicked pissed off. And they told me I can't walk in the house there. Or they were going to call the cops on me. So I walked in the house over there. And I put my skin. They said, well, you can't be here. I said, John, come home. This girl has had problems with DSS before. Okay. What's your first name, sir? Jared lies to the dispatcher by telling her he's using his, quote, other phone. Just then, Jennifer re-enters their apartment to find Jared speaking with 911, using her cell phone. More arguing ensues before Jennifer takes the phone back and speaks to the operator on the line. Christina is on the line with 911 as well at the exact same time next door. 911, Sanjakota, what's your emergency? Hi, um, my neighbors are having a d- domestic disturbance and um, um, the fiancé, um, Jen, a, just got thrown into a mirror. They, they, we share a wall with them, um, so, so I heard it. And she just went back over there to get her phone and I'm just concerned for them. So. Okay, so she, she came over to your apartment, correct? Yes, she came over to my so apartment and locked the door. Why did she go back over there? Um, because she had her phone, and so she w- went back over there, and I have a baby at home, so I don't want to go over there. Um, I was just wondering if maybe you could send a, a unit um, over here, because he's um, like in an outrage, and he, he won't be calmed okay, down. Well, he's not in an outrage right now, because he's on the phone with us. Right, right. So, I mean, but that was not smart of her to go next door once she was already in, in safe, someplace safe. Yeah, yeah. At this point, all three individuals, Jared, Jennifer, and Christina, are all on the phone with 911. Jared called on his own phone, surely in an effort to manipulate his way out of the situation. 911, this line's recorded. What's your emergency? Hi, this is Jared. You're on the phone with me early before my girlfriend took the phone. Okay, Jared, are there all those out there? No, I'm outside waiting for them. I just, honestly, there was no complication, and I hope they see that because she knows my record from when I was younger.
they're ganging up on me now because I took the phone. They thought I'd yeah. be afraid to talk to the police for my thoughts. <laughs> Notice how the dispatcher says, Thanks, Jer, as if their best friends are at the very least certainly familiar with one another. Just then, the police arrived on scene. They came and they arrested him. And, you know, she was obviously really worked up and she was pacing in my house and she was so scared and she was so confused. And then the one officer was actually, he was quite calm and good with her. And he said, you know, I can just go get the restraining order and come back and we can call the judge now. And so he did that. And, and it was on my, my kitchen table and he had her fill out the temporary restraining order and he, he walked her through it. Fearful of what might happen next and unsure of when Jared might return, Christina insisted that Jen and her daughter Ariana stay the night. After all, both women were severely on edge. They tried their best to get some rest after a long and arduous day, but Christina couldn't sleep, waking up in a cold sweat from a terrible nightmare. That night, I had a, a dream that Jared actually got a gun and basically just shot us all. And so I woke up pretty shaken up. I told her about my dream and I said, please, let's extend the restraining order. And actually, I said, let's go to Disney World. So she'd always wanted to, be, to go to Disney World with, with Ariana. We went to get Dunkin' Donuts and I said, let's just go. Let's just go to Disney World. And at that point, Jared apparently had been let out on bail. Jared posted the $40 bail himself for the assault. Christina was ready to drop everything and head to Disney World at that very moment, just to ensure that Jennifer and her daughter Ariana were safe, but Jennifer declined. The group then decided to take the kids to a nearby petting zoo in an effort to help Jennifer take her mind off things. While at the farm, however, Christina recalls Jared's mother texting Jennifer constantly in regards to where Jared would stay after his release from jail. Phoebe had texted and called completely conflicted, not arguing with Phoebe, but not knowing what to do. And she told me after she got off the call with Phoebe that she didn't want Jared at her house. And Jen felt pressured to take Jared back. Jennifer also had allegedly received a text message from Jared's sister, Jenna, that read something to the effect of, I'm afraid my brother is going to kill you. Clearly, neither Jennifer nor Jared's sister felt safe around him. But Jennifer eventually caved to the pressure, allowing Jared to come back to their apartment. August 15th, 2013, that following morning. The next morning, she knocked on my door and she told me that, you know, Jared's furious at you for what happened on Tuesday night. He blames you for it. You're going to have to lay low for a while, is what she said to me. She said, I love you. And I said, I love you back. And then she, she left. Christina wasn't sure what this meant. Was Jared going to come after her because she helped Jennifer escape from him just days before? She was scared, but she had no way of knowing just how crucial these moments were, speaking with her best friend, until later that evening. I was doing some work, and I heard that same banging from next door. Christina wasted no time in waiting to find out what was going on. She called 911 immediately. 
The sounds heard through the wall were all too similar to what she'd heard just nights before. Just then, Christina heard Ariana scream. That's when she ran to Jennifer's. I ran over there and um, Jen had just pushed herself from the screen door and she literally like fell out the house and she said in this like really husky voice, help, help, please help me. By the time I'd like gotten to them, Jared had Jen on her back and he was on top of her. I thought that he was like strangling her because he had he had one hand on her throat area. I just started punching him. I was like, stop, stop. I was screaming and I hadn't realized that actually he had a knife in his right hand and he was he was stabbing her. Christina was in a state of panic when she realized Jared Remy wasn't just beating Jennifer with his fist like she initially thought, but brutally plunging a knife into the side of her neck. It's a sound I'll never forget. It was like a squishing sound that replays in my mind. He was repeatedly stabbing her. In a courtyard full of people, Christina yelled at the top of her lungs for anyone to come help her. Only one man came to her aid, a fellow resident named Benjamin Ray. I just was screaming my head off. He started trying to like clap to like get Jared to stop just to distract him for a second. Jared swiped the knife at him and he turned to me and he said, run, run now. Christina ran back to her unit to call 911 again. While on the phone, she was forced to helplessly witness Jared Remy continue to stab Jennifer. While I was on the phone with them, I watched him essentially finish killing her. I knew because her leg flopped over. Then... After a while, he took his tank top off. It was like a blue tank top, and he threw it over her face. Once Jared Remy was finally content that Jennifer Martell had no chance at surviving, he threw his shirt on her face, dropped the knife to the patio, glared at Christina, and then casually walked back inside of his apartment. Police arrived on scene at approximately 8.48 p.m. to the Windsor Village Apartments. Two officers then ascended on foot up the grassy hill to apartment 1203. As they approached with their weapons drawn, a large male emerged from the home, coming out onto the front porch with his blood-soaked hands raised high in the air. Officers noticed the shirtless man's socks were fully saturated with blood. In the police report, it stated that at least one of the officers recognized the man as Jared Remy. The suspect was then ordered to the ground. He complied, laid there on his stomach, and was put into handcuffs on the front lawn. After searching Remy for weapons, they found a soft black sunglasses case on his person. Inside of the case was Jennifer Martell's wedding ring. It's unclear if Jennifer removed the ring herself before or during the argument or if Remy had removed it from her himself. As police moved around the perimeter of the home, they eventually came upon Jennifer Martell's lifeless body. She lay motionless, having sustained multiple stab wounds and lacerations to her neck and shoulder area. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Jared Remy physically could not fit into the back of a standard police cruiser, so a van more commonly known as a paddy wagon was dispatched and Remy was subsequently taken into custody. The following day on August 16, 2013, Jared Remy was arraigned yet again in Waltham District Court in front of the same judge that let him out of jail after throwing Jennifer Martell 
into a mirror just days before, Judge Tobin Harvey. But this time, Remy wasn't going home. He was being charged with murder and was being held without bail. Remy was indicted by a grand jury of the Middlesex County Superior Court a few weeks later, eventually entering a plea of not guilty on all counts. At a hearing soon after, his trial was set for less than a year from that date, in October of 2014. Long before the trial, word that son of famous Red Sox announcer Jerry Remy had killed his girlfriend was already making headline news. The story quickly spread outside of Boston and was a nationwide topic in the media. Following Jennifer Martell's murder, the Boston Globe released a hard-hitting piece entitled For Jared Remy, Leniency Was the Rule Until One Lethal Night. This work gained the attention of America focusing on the failures and complete breakdowns of the justice system in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. The piece questioned how and why this man was allowed to walk free so many times until it ultimately cost one innocent woman her life. Father Jerry and Mother Phoebe of accused murderer Jared came under equal scrutiny. Criticism of the parents' financial assistance for their son in regards to lawyers' fees for known domestic violence cases was one bullet point among several topics for discussion. Accusatory statements ran rampant, questioning the family's abuse of power in the city of Boston due to Jerry Remy's fame. The public was divided. Some placed blame on the Remy family for their role in the tragedy. Others stood by their beloved ex-Red Sox second baseman, Jerry, while others blamed the courts. But it wasn't just the Remy family and the justice system under attack for Jennifer Martell's death. Christina Flickinger, Jennifer's next-door neighbor who witnessed her friend's murder and tried to save her, was even receiving unsavory messages from people online. Some believed Christina was trying to obtain her 15 minutes of fame, a notion assumed due to her outspokenness and the fact that she'd given several interviews following the attack. At 9 a.m., the morning after the murder, the NRA knocked on Christina's door, expressing their view that Jennifer would still be alive if she had a gun and asked for comment. This was one of the few organizations Christina chose not to speak with, believing their agenda was inconsiderate. Regardless of what her stance on gun laws was, she hadn't even been given 24 hours to grieve the loss of her best friend. Jerry Remy decided to take a leave of absence from the broadcast booth in wake of these horrible events. It was unsure at the time if Jerry was stepping down for good, but everyone in the city of Boston seemed to be missing the point. That point being Jennifer's life. Who Jennifer was, what her aspirations were, and how far she'd come in reaching those goals. In the midst of the media playing the blame game, and other than the fact that she had been killed, Jennifer seemed to come secondary in the story. She was plucked from existence by a man who certainly never deserved her love in the first place. And at the time of her death, it seemed the only thing people wanted to talk about was Jerry Remy and the Red Sox. While Christina Flickinger agrees these are components of the story, she stressed to us that the main reason she took the interview with Invisible Choir was to make these facts about her friend known. The facts about Jennifer that everyone else seemed to overlook. Christina asked us to do what she felt many publications had not, and that was to make Jennifer's story a priority. I think what every outlet got wrong is that the story was about a privileged white man who cheated the system time and time again that was 
rife with money and power and daddy and was enabled to abuse women time and again. That is one of the stories, right? But that's a story that should have been told before Jen died. What story isn't told is the story of Jen. Jen was going to be the first person in her family to go finish higher education. She literally picked herself up. Her parents left her when she was in high school and she wanted to finish high school. So she found lodging with a friend and she finished high school. Like she was the most determined and smart and wise and kind and hilarious person I've ever met. And she was happy-go-lucky and she hadn't had an easy life. And she hadn't had people believe in her. She believed in herself and she picked herself up by the bootstraps and she never blamed anyone for anything in her life. She just was didn't whine. She didn't blame anyone. She was always frugal with her money because she worked really hard. This is a girl who bought an Old Navy bathing suit that was on sale that was a size too big for herself and sat on her patio with me and sewed it back together so that it could be the right size for her. She didn't spend any money on herself and she was just creative and fun. Jennifer Martell undoubtedly touched so many lives. It's clear that the impact she made on Christina Flickinger was profound. And on August 22, 2013, 27-year-old Jennifer Martell would be laid to rest in Taunton, Massachusetts. The funeral services were private, but a public memorial was held at a later date. Jennifer's mother provided the following statement to local news reporters. I miss her. love her. And I feel like, you know, when her heart stopped beating, you know, I feel like part of me died with her. WPRI of Rhode Island interviewed Jennifer's grandfather, who spoke to her character, as well as the dark truths he'd known for some time about Jared Remy. She was always really good going. Uh, Didn't have any problems. She was a happy girl. She worked hard. It didn't seem that it was going that great because he was the way he is for a long time. Calling her fat, calling her this, calling her that, degrading her, which that was his favorite sport. I don't blame the parents. I just blame the person that done the deed. Custody agreements were amicably reached in regards to Jennifer's daughter, Ariana. Primary care of the five-year-old was given to Jennifer's parents. Phoebe and Jerry Remy were also granted custody rights as well, and would also very much be a part of the little girl's life and future. While awaiting trial, Jared Remy surely hadn't changed. In April of 2014, he threw a cup of scolding hot coffee in the face of another inmate while behind bars. Remy believed the man to be a child molester, and reports state that he had planned the attack. Following the incident, Remy reportedly stated, quote, I did what I had to do. I got a child molester. This, of course, wasn't shocking. What was surprising, however, was when Jared Remy chose to take back his original plea of not guilty at a pretrial hearing. Remy ultimately decided to plead guilty on all counts, including the first-degree murder charge of Jennifer L. Martell. His decision confused nearly everyone including Remy's new attorney, Ed Ryan. Ryan had this to say in regards to his client's sudden change of heart. 
Well, as he said in open court, because he did the crime and he wanted to take full responsibility for it, as I've said before, and that's exactly why uh, he did what he did. He is at peace with his decision, yes. Certainly no one was losing sleep over whether or not Jared Remy was at peace with himself. At the very minimum, this would now expedite the proceedings, negating the scheduled October trial, saving the Martell family the extended turmoil of sitting through the grueling details of Jennifer's murder. On May 27, 2014, Jared Remy would enter those guilty pleas as planned, but not before family and friends of Jennifer's had a chance to give their victim impact statements. Christina Flickinger was amongst those friends. It's bad enough to lose a close friend at any age, leaving so much undone, so much unsaid, so much unlearned. It is worse to see that friend take her last breath at the hands of a man that you let drive your car and eat your food and hang out on your couch and walk to get ice cream with. Every second of every day that I'm not doing something, caring for my 14-month-old who will never know his godmother or working full-time. Every second that I have to myself, I think of the night of August 15th, but mostly I think about what Jen thought about. Did she think about the warnings people had given? Did she think about her daughter and what would happen to her? Did she know she was going to die? As was his constitutional right, Jared Remy was also given the opportunity to speak. His words, however, were frighteningly contradictory, to say the least. First, I would like to thank Josh Sullivan, Shane Tassilian, Eddie Stone, and all the guys from Somerville for taking me in. I wish you guys the best of luck and a good life. I would like to say, blame me for this, not my family. They thought of Jen as their fourth kid. She was a great sister to my brother and a great sister to my sister and a real mother to my son and a great mother to our little girl. My family did everything they could to help Jen and hope she had a good life. Jen always said that my family was her real family. They both loved each other and I'm the bad apple. And if you ask my family, they'd rather have me dead than her. I know Jen is looking down. I hope her and Buddy are getting along up there and having a fun time. Jen helped me clean up my act, but there was one thing I never stopped doing. That was my love for drugs, and I'm sorry for that. Jen was an angel and always will be an angel. And for the two people that keep using Jen to make themselves look good, stop. You know who you are, and you know what you are. Your Honor, I am here today, not for a deal, but to take responsibility for what I have done. I would like you to know that I always told Jen she could leave, but do not threaten me with my daughter. That night, Jen had a knife in her hand and threatened me with my daughter, so I killed her. I don't think it's right when women use their kids against their fathers. And to all the people that have blamed my family, go clean your clock and go clean your closet. I am an honest, loyal, and a person of my word, and everything I have said today is the truth, and I have nothing to lie about. It should be noted here that there was never any evidence to substantiate the claims that Jennifer Martell 
ever held a knife before or during the altercation that ultimately led to her murder, as Jared Remy claims. Even during his admittance of guilt, Remy still finds a way to deflect accountability, even going so far as to blame his victim, suggesting that it was her fault for allegedly threatening to take their child away from him. Jennifer's parents are visibly stunned in the courtroom as they looked to one another during his statements. In the end, he was given a mandatory life sentence for murdering Jennifer Martell without the possibility of parole. The very day after Jennifer Martell was killed, Jerry Remy announced his indefinite leave of absence from the Boston Red Sox organization. Roughly a year later in 2014, Jerry decided it was time to come back to broadcasting. He sat down with Channel 5 News in Boston to discuss the difficulties surrounding this decision. The fact is, this is something that will remain with us for the rest of our lives. We're not going to get over this. This is not an easy thing to to throw to the side. You can't do it. It's there when you get up in the morning. It's there when you go to bed at night. But you do have to carry on, and that's one thing that my friends and family convinced me of. And, um, uh, and as I said, it wasn't easy making a decision, but uh, I'm taking a gamble, I'm, I'm rolling the dice, and we'll see how it goes. Have you thought about what you'd do if the Martells came forward and said, we're not comfortable, that's wrong? Probably walk away. Probably walk away. The Martells have gone on record to state that they have no feelings one way or the other in regards to Jerry Remy's return to the Red Sox organization, and they have never expressed any disagreement with his decision. After a long bout with lung cancer, Jerry Remy passed away on October 30th, 2021, just nine days before his 69th birthday. Christina Flickinger moved far away from Boston following the incident. She now resides overseas, but no matter the distance, she says that August 15th, 2013 will haunt her forever. The incident did make me move straight after Jen's murder. There was blood stain on the patio of their place next door that I had to walk by every day. They had an American flag that was flying in their patio and it was blood stained and it stood flying in there for the, the month after Jen's murder. That was definitely the um, the straw that broke the camel's back for my marriage. It wasn't going to last anyways, but um, witnessing what I did and it caused my my marriage to, to definitely crumble faster, I think, um, probably. So I have a new partner. I've, I've moved over to the UK and I've been here the um, past five or so years. So, um, so. Jared Remy is currently serving out his life sentence at the medium security Massachusetts Correctional Institution in Shirley. <laughs> 